Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited to have Nafez Dakak on the show. He's the founder of Builder Ventures. We're going to be talking about that, but also spend a little bit of time talking about what he's doing on Substack. He's an interesting writer and thinker. I saw his stuff, and that's how we met. And lo and behold, we're having an episode. Nafez, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Michael. Absolute pleasure. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's fun to talk to people who I've read and, you know, you are pretty consistent now with your articles out there. I know that's not all that you do. So let's start by introducing our guest to you. Share with us your professional origin story. Trying to be consistent on Substack. I mean, I, I think about once a month now, but it doesn't always happen. Especially since having a kid, it's a, it's a lot harder to, to be consistent with the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say for me, start off eighth grade won't sort of translate word for word, but was sitting, I think it was Arabic class and heard this lesson, this sort of verse of poetry around, you know, what kind of platforms are there for learning and growth and development? And I'd say like really kind of like one of these moments where you hear a phrase and it just resonates so well with you. Hmm. And I'd say ever since then, I've kind of been asking myself, like, what kind of platforms can we build out there for people to help them grow and self-actualize and fulfill their potential? Hmm. And I'd say that's how I ended up down sort of the education path. Did my undergrad in the U.S., where I say start off with economics, but did my thesis on curriculum reform in the Middle East, specifically mm. actually looking more from, not in a prescriptive way, but more from sort of a normative analysis on you know, what are the underlying factors that usually make curriculum reform successful or unsuccessful, specifically mm. looking at Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, a sort of comparative contrast. And then from there, did two years almost in, in strategy consulting. In, I'd say, education strategy, primarily working with governments across the Gulf, so Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE at the time as well. And from there, got headhunted to work at the Quilani Foundation, which is a foundation founded by the Queen of Jordan, focused on education of one. And there, I'd say, I had the opportunity to venture build for the foundation, Edrock, which is an online learning platform. Obviously, I'm many of your learners will be familiar with edX. So... Basically, it's the Arabic yeah. program of edX. I think we were one of the first, if not certainly the first in the region, to jump on the edX code base when it was open source. So we used open edX to deliver high quality content and courses for Arabic speaking learners. I'd say back then, sort of, I thought this was going to be the silver bullet that solved all educational problems. I sort of know yeah. better now. I mean, you, you um, heard about it in eighth grade, and now you were you were ready to solve the, the whole problem it, right it, there. It, it, exactly. I think, again, like, I think it's a 7 million learners across the region. So hopefully some positive impact, but I'd say not the silver bullet. I think that's also part of the, the journey of sort of maturing as you work in education, that there are no silver bullets. You sort of have mm. potentially a lot of good, like normal or regular bullets. And I think that was one of them. And then, yeah, so, so after that, to cut a long story short, got my master's at Harvard in educational neuroscience, specifically looking at Arabic literacy. And let's mm. say that's something that also maybe started at the foundation towards the end of my time there. The foundation is doing a lot of work around literacy, Arabic literacy across Jordan and then mm. the larger Middle East. And early last year, 2022, set up Builder Ventures, mm. which is a venture studio or a venture builder focused on what we call the learn to earn cycle, um, mm. or how to help people learn better, faster, and then on better and faster with those skills. And today we're on our fourth company. And obviously we've crashed a lot more companies as well, but I, I guess that's the only way you'll learn 
But, you know, when we were setting up for this, your perspective is likely different than folks in the U.S. who are the majority of my guests where, you know, you've really had a focus on the, the Middle East and the Arab world. But it is interesting when we see common trends and threads that are really shared globally. Frequently, that's a sign that something's bigger, perhaps more relevant, perhaps more noteworthy. And that's really what drew me to your Substacks, which are a little broader, I guess, in their perspective. They're not as narrowly focused on technology. The one that I think we were going to dig into a little more was about artificial intelligence and some of the upside there, but hopefully, you know, less of a technology deep dive and more of a reflection on humans and how we learn and how might some of these new things help us with that. And you had some nice sports analogies. You talked about crossovers. You talked about Pokemon. You had me at crossovers and then you threw some Pokemon in and it's all in the service of making thinking visible. How do we learn better about you know how we learn and how this technology might be our partner in the conversation? Can you share a little bit of your thinking that went into writing that article? We'll include links to the article and to Nafez's Substack. It's Nafez's Notes. We'll include links to that on the show page. But can you catch us up on your initial thoughts and, and what really drove you to write that article? Oh, definitely. I'd say I mean, what advised me to write, generally speaking, just to sort of learn in public and honestly to sort of meet people like you, Michael. And, and that's definitely something I picked up on. First, with the power of analogy, I think one of the things that I really picked up from my professor in grad school, Tina Glotzer, was just the power of analogy and helping us better understand and sort of take things forward. And I think once you start thinking of analogies, you realize like they permeate everything in your life. Like almost everything, every figure of manner of speech is almost an analogy. It's actually, I think, incredibly difficult to try to explain anything without using an analogy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where this started for me. And what I try to do along my Substack is take academic, sometimes sort of boring concepts and sort of make them much more easily accessible and hopefully powerful through analogy to sort of a larger audience, specifically an audience maybe that's sort of more business oriented, that's trying to sort of reform or build stuff in education and tech. And so what I was trying to push here, and I start with the notion is one of the most important, if not the most important thing in learning education is to make thinking visible. Because when I can make thinking visible, I can understand the process and the steps that somebody is going through to try to solve a problem, to come towards a conclusion, and then I can fix that. And where sports come in is in sports, generally speaking, thinking is very, very visible. It's made visible through movement. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the phrase poetry in motion, which people probably, you know, usually associate with Michael Jordan, LeBron yeah. James. I mean, I get it occasionally, but yeah, yeah those guys probably first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'd say maybe even more broadly, if you about a sport like football or soccer in the U.S., watch and sort of messy do something with the ball, you can see that as sort of poetry in motion because you can see what he's thinking, what he's trying to get at, but you can actually see it sort of manifested. Mm -hmm. and, and the analogy, for example, I guess in this case, I use in the article starting with like when I first learned how to cross over. Obviously, I guess it's a play on words because we're crossing over from sports to education yeah. into AI is as a kid, you know, you learn how to cross over. It looks really cool. But you're not really sure why you're supposed to use a crossover. But then when a coach, basketball coach, sees you playing ball, they yeah. can tell whether you understand this or not and coach you very uh, in, in a much easier manner. And I think that's kind of what's missing in learning and education is 
I can see a kid trying to solve a math problem, but I can't always see the exact mistakes and gaps in their thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where I think AI, artificial intelligence, specifically the notion of sort of teachable agents, becomes very powerful. Because if I, and we've talked about this a lot in maybe peer to peer learning, peer education, in terms of you don't learn anything as well as when you have to teach it to somebody else, because you have mm-hmm. to sort of look at it from different angles. You have to make your thinking very visible so yes. other people can see it and, and copy it. And again, obviously making a very, I'd say, explicit assumption moving away from rote learning to actual, you know, learning based on sort of deep understanding as sort of a technical term where people understand the yep. problem, understand the steps taking solution in context and can really transfer this uh, to other applicable contexts. And I think that's sort of where maybe the Pokemon analogy comes in. And I think for the Pokemon nerds out there, you know, the assumption has always been, you know, how can I create a tutor that can teach somebody everything? And not to know how can create a professor oh, that can teach you how to catch them all. But yeah. I think more interesting sort of problem to solve is how can I give each student or learner a Pokemon that they can train because by training that Pokemon, and again, this is like the textbook maybe constructionist pedagogy, they're building something in that sort of Pokemon's proverbial brain, and I can then see how they learn. And for me, there's an interesting angle there also that making assessment part of the learning process, because once I force you to sort of delineate your thinking process, it makes it much easier for you to assess whether you understand a concept, a component. And finally, I think the last maybe sort of element that comes into all of this is making this a lot more play-based, closer to a game. But James G, who used to be at Arizona State University, he talks a lot about this notion of in school, we make you kind of like read the manual or the guide to the game, but never play the game. We want you to memorize everything mm. in the manual, mm-hmm. but we never actually let you sort of play the game, drive the car, do any of that stuff. The yeah. idea really is sort of get closer and closer to games where, if, if anything, nobody really picks up the manual before playing the game. You just go straight into playing the game and you'll learn the game through, I'd say, trial and error. And, and that's sort of, I'd say, effectively for me, the holy grail that education should, in most cases, aspire to. I mean, you probably don't want to do that for driving the car. You want people to like do a bit more learning. But generally speaking, I'd say for most academic subjects, that in my mind should be the ultimate goal. Yeah, it's a good read. We'll definitely include it on the show page. To me, I was immediately drawn. You know, you're a parent of a, a, a young child. I have a soon-to-be five-year-old who just started kindergarten. But it made me think of he has this toy that we got, which is, he calls it his AI toy. It's a little car. And depending on the color of the tiles that he puts his car on, the car moves in different ways. And it's funny because he calls it his AI toy. And the way he's thinking about it, it is a little bit like pseudocode. It's very playful. And it's also mission oriented to some extent where he's trying to get his toy to do certain things. And when you were just talking, it it definitely drew me to that, where that's very different than the model that we typically see in classrooms. You know, if you're fortunate, you have that maybe in pre-K, early childhood education, but relatively soon after that, it becomes much more about knowing what, like getting very, you know, declarative knowledge into their brains. And then, like you say, not necessarily applying that in, in practice. How are you thinking about that? You know, it does seem like you're, there's some provocations perhaps in what you're putting out there in terms of making thinking visible 
And then, you know, how do we give teachers more ability to do that? How do we integrate things like ed tech and artificial intelligence into classrooms to help with that? Any thoughts on how this might play forward? Yeah, very, very dangerous actually to sort of try to predict two points here. One is to say, you know, the quality of any educational system cannot exceed the quality of its teachers. So I think this needs to really start and end with how we train teachers better, or empower teachers more, pay teachers better in, in sort of most cases. So I'd say in reality, that's sort of a big sort of limiting factor here is that, you know, we just haven't invested well enough in sort of training and sort of managing teachers as well. To take a page out of sort of a different sector, you know, Ryan Chesky, founder of Airbnb, who recently gave a talk about sort of his vision for the company, he has a very interesting quote. I don't know if he's sort of thought about applying it to education, but he says, you know, the thing that technology does really well is make any process very efficient. Hmm. And to do that, it removes the messiness of human relationships. And we shouldn't forget that at Airbnb. And he also talks about sort of the implications for that on Airbnb's product. I think that that's also kind of the problem sort of in education. At the end of the day, education, rust kind of education is really centered on, you know, deep human connection and emotion. Because mm -hmm. I think one of the bigger problems to solve in education is one of motivation, not of sort of providing better content or better tutors. Yeah. And that usually, you know, needs to happen human to human. And trying to scale that purely through technology without being very careful just breaks it down because by their nature human relationship is very messy it yeah. is not very easy to sort of automate and by trying to make it more efficient you're literally trying to streamline it and, and, and it doesn't work there are a lot of things that people can try to teach you but you will never learn unless you make the mistakes yourself that's the, the first thing i would say the second thing and i guess somewhat related is Technology is always ever going to be a tool. I think part of the problem we have is not always defining the problems we want to solve very well before then applying that to one of the people, you know, I've had the privilege to speak to is Boris Saxberg. Sure. We used to be at the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. Been on, been on this show a couple of times. Oh, okay. I need to get Brewer back on, but a shout yeah, out to Brewer. Exactly. He's great. Yeah. He's absolutely incredible. And, you know, like talking to him, I've really learned a lot about, you know, how do you think about getting context right, because that's a bigger problem. And Rora's spoken about that a few times in terms of usually we think of scaling in education the way you think about scaling a software product. And I guess that's kind of the danger now with AI. I think AI is potentially powerful enough for us to be very, very context-driven and context-aware. But the challenge for me is trying to, again, get this product to, to work, product market fit, and then scale, scale, scale. Mm -hmm. And Roar, you know, made a very good point to me, where is that, you know, in civil engineering, that's not how we scale. When you build a bridge in Oklahoma, you don't pick up that same bridge and take it to Texas. Mm -hmm. You take the lessons you've learned from building the bridge in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. you go to where you want to build the bridge in Texas, wherever that is. And okay, you know, what are the relevant contextual drivers and factors that we need to keep in mind Mm -hmm. and edit and fix to sort of make sure that this bridge works. I'm a believer that I think the AI hype as of now, hopefully once some of that dies down, will enable us to sort of do this better, take context and learner context and ingest it sort of much faster process and adapt accordingly. But again, I don't think that's going to happen as fast as sort of people would like to believe. I mean, again, like this happens every single time, I think. I know when the U.S. postal system became a thing, people thought this is going to revolutionize learning and education. 
Yeah. The radio was supposed to revolutionize education. Then the TV was supposed to revolutionize education. Then the computer was supposed to revolutionize education. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've been here before and the phrase this time is different is, I think, very, very dangerous. But again, I think we, we need to be optimistic and I am optimistic that this will happen. I just don't think it'll happen as fast as people behind the hype believe, but I think it'll be a much deeper and larger impact than the naysayers are sort of predicting when we sort of look back at this. But what I just take five years or 10 years. There is some, you know, shout out to Kevin Kelly. There's a little bit of inevitability to some of the advancements that we're seeing. Although one of our favorite shows that's coming up, we break down the Gardner hype cycle, which is out now. And it did look like there's a lot of technologies at the tippity top of that roller coaster about to head into the trough of disillusionment, which is kind of the nature of things nowadays. And I think generative AI was right at the front of it, which doesn't mean we're not going to you know, reap tremendous value from it. It just means it's overhyped and it's not going to solve everything. And it's also that it will be misapplied and overused and introduce new problems that we're going to need to solve. The other element to this that is very deeply connected, and I'm sure you look at this in your day job, is the nature of work and how work is changing. You mentioned the connection between work and learn and how those two things are becoming more integrated when thoughtfully designed nowadays. I'd love to hear a little bit of your thinking about how jobs are being changed and, you know, both within education, but then also the educational impact of new skills emerging, new jobs entering the marketplace. How are you thinking about the future of work? Builder will try to be kind of like the center of this learn to earn cycle. And I think on the earn side, maybe that's where the impact of AI is much clearer to see. A lot of estimates out there showing that people are already 30 to 40% more productive because they're using AI tools. Mm. And maybe the, the most basic example is software developers that are using GitHub full pilot are 30 to 40% more productive and some yep. 50% more productive. And I think it's a great societal question. Like, what are we going to do with that extra time? Or are we going to use that time for leisure, which I think we tends to happen in places like Europe, or are we going to use that to do more work, which tends to be the case in places like the US. Obviously, again, those trends haven't always been that way. There was a time where obviously the French and the Germans worked a lot more than Americans and sort of vice versa. So I think what the rise of AI maybe sort of accelerates is this blurring, I'd say, potentially between what it means to be sort of an institution and what it means to be like an individual freelancer. And that's something yeah. at Builder, you know, we spent a lot of time sort of thinking about because now as an individual freelancer, let's say, you know, you're in the content marketing business mm -hmm. or you're in the design space or really, I'd say any of sort of the UI, UX, any of the primary or the biggest jobs that people use freelancers for on platforms like Upwork or Hatsub here sort of in the Middle East, those people can now do multiple jobs on orders of magnitude that they could before with less people. So each person now could be sort of their own marketing agency mm -hmm. and, and do really the kind of work that maybe two people did in a week or eventually three people. So how that changes, I'd say, work structures, hiring, whether that means more jobs or sort of go to freelancers and contractors or vice versa, does it make more sense now to bring people in-house and I think, again, that is kind of like a question for the economists that we sort of think about. Another question for the economists think about, like, what skills are actually still relevant? One of the things that I'm seeing, and like, we talk about this a lot at work, is, and I don't know if you've seen this, you know, you get an email that is just like, in a sense, maybe just too polished, 
and you can tell it could be summarized with just two lines. You yeah. wish the person just didn't use chat yeah. GPT or whatever they did. So I think that is a bit of a danger for sort of signal to noise ratio. And I think that's an interesting connection back into education, which is now that we've lowered the floors and anybody can play, we also need to raise the ceilings for what sort of quality checks we do. And, and that's also something, you know, I, I talk about in education and, and, and in my Substack, actually it was my first post on AI, which is, you know, there's all this worry and concern about all, but now the kids can cheat and like now the essay right. uh, are no longer valid. And for me, that's kind of a bug that we've just always accepted in education. Like we always knew that people could cheat. We always knew the questions we were asking were not really a good test for any kind of competency. Mm-hmm. If anything, now we can just ask a lot more of the learners. We can yeah. get them much closer to playing the game. And again, it's not like there isn't cheating when people are playing video games, but your incentive to cheat, I'd say, is a lot lower in video games because there's this kind of vibrant sense of enjoyment. So yeah, I'd, I'd say the other thing is think about you know, what skills are so relevant, how does this affect what people know? Does anybody... Like it's the same kind of question when Grammarly maybe came out, you know, do you need to learn how to write English well? Because now Grammarly will fix everything for you. Right. And there's also, you know, the discussion on does new skills like prompt engineering, et cetera, are they a fad? And will the technology get so good eventually that nobody will really need to be a prompt engineer because the AI will be so good at natural language processing. Right. Um, yeah. Don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know, but, but I think those are the kind of questions I'm thinking about. Yeah. And it's not an old saw yet, but I think it will be, is that AI is not going to take your job. Someone using AI is going to take your job. You know, we are, as a species, we're tool builders and tool users, and this is the new tool. I think the risk is if you build too many guardrails and really limit the use of some of these new tools and technologies, it just widens the gap when folks have to enter a workforce in the future. And there's some skill sets and also mindsets that I think are, are really critical to thrive. And that's kind of what you're getting at too, where there is critical thinking baked in, there is curiosity and almost like a playfulness and sort of an exploratory mindset that is very, you know, I guess aspirational. And then it also seems to tie very much from a business side, the organizations that you're going to want to invest in are building cultures that are thoughtful about how the humans can thrive, you know, even in a little bit of managed mess, getting back to your previous point where, you know, humans are a little bit messy, you know, and I'm trying not to make a messy analogy since you brought him up before, but any thoughts on how you might build a a winning culture and how you think about, you know, the term that's out there lots of times is human capital and how does the AI plug into the human capital? It almost seems to miss some inherent humanism that's needed for an organization to truly thrive. But I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on that. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about, and this certainly came about after talking a bit to the guys at Lego, and it made me realize that, you know, one of the things that we unlearn sort of our detriment is the ability to play with things. And, you know, when something like AI comes out, depending on what the tool of choice is, whether it's a mid-journey or a chat GPT, the people that are able to sort of pick it up, utilize it very quickly, I'd see are sort of the players and maybe people are happy to tinkle around with it yep. for no purpose. You know, they're just intrinsically curious. They want to see like, how does this work? How is this going to do X or Y or Z? And I think that is kind of, I'd say the kind of cultural value 
we want to continue to instill into people as opposed to take it out of them. And again, there's sort of maybe a lot of reasons that I'm not an expert on this, why people stop playing the best way to sort of raise the people and bring that back in to their lives. But I think that that is the one facet that is, I can see as you know, the biggest detriment of how quickly people are adapting to new technologies or they're not. Yeah. It reminds me of the imposter syndrome, but then also the idea that nobody's really good with this stuff when it first comes out. You know, it's the difference between the person who tries something fails and wants to try less versus the person who tries something fails and says, hmm, interesting. You know, like you're, why didn't it go the way I thought? And what might I do that's different? The other idea that's out there, you did drop Broer Saxberg's name. I've got to learn this concept from Broer is the idea of cognitive task analysis in that there's a lot of implicit knowledge that we as humans have that, you know, you're talking about making it visible. There are actual techniques to kind of extract expertise and make it more transparent so other people can draw from it. Any thoughts on that? Find the experts and then find out what do they do in these instances. It seems to me like one of the things they do is they're very good at playing with stuff and sort of asking themselves questions and sort of making time to do that. And again, it's also kind of, I'd say, reminds me a bit of an investing sort of principle, which is, you know, find out what the nerds and the geeks are sort of doing on the weekend. And that's what everybody's going to be doing full time in sort of 20 to 30 years. And then again, yeah. it's a lot of this, right? Like I, I do remember the friends that were, I mean, maybe first, you know, playing around with crypto. That suddenly became a fad. I can't claim I fully understand what crypto does or sort of why it's important, but it seems to be important on some level to be able to have, you know, a decentralized system of truth. And then, you know, the same guys that were playing with, you know, AI agents, machine learning, et cetera, it's now suddenly what everybody is trying to sort of do. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I think in terms of cognitive task analysis, you know, how do I identify the expert and then keep that? And I think, you know, that is really, when you think about sort of an adult learning, continuous learning framework you want to operate on, that's really what you're trying to do. The question that maybe AI helps with now is, you know, how quickly can we sort of scale and create those learning experiences? The missing part of the education system right now, for me, is a GPS. It is an assessment system. I sort of have a lot of gripe with, again, everyone's free to do whatever they want, but I have a gripe with efforts to try to build the next Netflix, the Netflix of education, YouTube for education, or YouTube is the most important learning tool, et cetera. Because I think with that missing, it's again, just going back to analogies, it's the wrong analogy. Mm. The right analogy you want is Google Maps. And that's really what needs to be built, what's missing. The reason we don't have good Google Maps is because we don't have a good GPS. We don't have a good assessment system that is, you know, seamless. That isn't burdensome because yes, if you sat down somebody for a day, you could probably eventually figure out where they are. And I'm hoping that, you know, generative AI, specifically large language models, if trained yeah. uh, and developed correctly, really help with that. Interesting. Yeah. I've heard folks talk about what Duolingo is doing in the world of, of assessing language acquisition and language knowledge as sort of replacing traditional assessment models where it becomes a little more of a play-like dynamic where I'm just continuing to engage with this thing. But then on the back end, the technology is assessing where I'm at, where it may not be the actual GPS that you're talking about, but it is interesting to think about whether it's coming through a formal assessment or is it coming through 
some sort of stealth monitoring of more play-like experiences. Really interesting conversation. We're talking to Nafez Dakak, who is the founder of Builder Ventures. He's also the mind behind Nafez's notes on Substack, which you can check out. Nafez, we've talked about what's happening out there in the world around us. How about from your personal experience? Do you have any advice or suggestions for folks who are interested in education, interested in perhaps making a difference, you know, folks who might have had the revelation you had in eighth grade. Any suggestions now that you've been down the road for a little while here? I'd say it, it depends on sort of what they want to do in education. I think the most important thing is trying to find a problem that, you know, resonates with you really, really well, that you're willing to sort of be obsessed with. Hmm. And then again, because once you've figured out sort of that motivation piece, again, there's this whole idea, I think for me is you need to be obsessed with the journey, not the destination. You need to be obsessed with the fight, not the victory, because those are the people that succeed. That, and I think each person can only answer that question for themselves. It's very, very hard for somebody else to do that. They could help you, you know, make, make some of your thinking visible and surface some of your assumption, mm-hmm. but you need to sort of answer that question. And then I'd say my next piece of advice is, you know, to take life and sort of six month experiment. Mm. It is good to kind of like have like a larger sort of North star that's maybe like 10 years down the horizon, five years down the horizon. But, you know, what are the six month experiments that sort of you're going to do so that you can get, you know, very clear feedback on yeah. what you're doing and whether that's working or not. And then, yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of people doing really, really good work out there to sort of like learn from them, check out their stuff, check out more stuff since we've actually done some good time. Yeah. And then you mentioned before, you know, keep an eye on what the nerds are looking at. Is there anything out there that we haven't talked about that's capturing your imagination, whether inside education or outside of education, anything for yeah, listeners? I mean, yeah. I, mean, I think the, the thing you kind of just alluded to toward then, this whole idea of stealth, like, I mean, stealth assessments is an area of sort of inquiry and study that I get to trying to learn more about. I've spoken to Professor Said Ahmed Rahimi at University of Florida about it. He's a fascinating I'd say mm. thinker on that. He obviously mm. worked under Valerie Shute, who I'd say is probably one of the pioneers, of all the pioneer that established the field of self-assessments. Mm. I think from an educational perspective, that is super interesting. I think the guards are still playing a lot of video games on the weekend. So yeah. what happens on sort of roadblocks and all of these platforms is super, super interesting. And I think the part that I'm trying to personally deconstruct is there's a specific skill set around onboarding people into games. You know, that first, you know, and mm. it's a phony game where they're onboarding you, you're playing the game, but you're also learning. Mm. Uh, and there are games that do that really well because the people behind it, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about it. Maybe there are games that do that less well and thus feel a bit more sort of instructionist. So trying to find those people is something I'm very sort of interested in. Hmm. Really interesting stuff with Nefaz Dakak, who is the founder of Builder Ventures. We're about to wrap up here. Nafez, it's been wonderful having this conversation. Love to have you back on. We'll continue to track what you're doing on Substack. Any parting thoughts, closing comments as our listeners head back to the rest of their lives? Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. We really appreciate it. Uh, I think what you do is very important. And yeah, really hope uh, we get to speak again. Awesome. Nafez Dakak, who is the author of Nafez's notes on Substack. He's also the founder of Builder Ventures. Our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.